This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to the Lawyer's Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, the Lawyer's Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer. The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. What a special treat today, listeners. We have for the first time, the very first time, the one, the only, Marie Hennen joining us in the lounge to talk about her new book, her memoirs, Nothing But the Truth. I didn't ask her for a long time. I didn't want to bother her. She's a very busy celebrity. I didn't want to impinge on her calendar. (laughs) But I asked her and she accepted the invitation and we're now in the lounge together. Welcome, Marie. Thank you very much, Danielle. I've sort of felt excluded from the lounge, you know, so I, I feel good that you invited me. Well, um, I can tell you that our, our publisher is very excited. Iman. Well, that's, good. Well, yeah. that's, that's very good to hear. <laughs> so um, I'm going to start with something a bit heavy. So brace yourself. Mm. One of the things that we've been exploring through the podcast um, is the whole concept, the whole idea of the lawyer's lounge. And, you know, when Lisa and I started the podcast, I don't know, 24 months ago, we were very excited about the idea of a virtual lawyer's lounge because a lawyer's lounge for both Lisa and I was a really wonderful, welcoming place where we felt at home with colleagues, we could exchange ideas. Uh, you know, let off a little steam and uh, was a place that we kind of wanted to replicate in a, in a kind of auditory way. And, and since we got started, we realized that, you know, that's just not true for all members of our profession. And that, in fact, the Lawyer's Lounge has been a place of exclusion for many people in the profession. And a lot of people don't feel at home in the lawyer's lounge. And in fact, there are cases in our country, in our city, in the GTA, where lawyers have been carted in in lawyer's lounges. And, you know, it's been uh, not a great experience. And so I guess my question for you uh, is about the lounge. Have you, how have you felt throughout your career in a lawyer's lounge? I would say I was not one of the lawyers who felt comfortable in the lawyer's lounge. Uh, I certainly felt a little more comfortable when I went with Eddie, but I was really an observer. I I felt that I was generally watching from the sidelines. I wasn't part of the, that generation that knew each other well, that went for drinks together, that, you know, did all the the cases together. Uh, And I think as I uh, got older, I I would not say that I felt like I was part of the club. I I certainly never felt that way. Um, There are very few female lawyers uh, and there are few female lawyers in in the lounge. Literally, uh, there were very few. So it wasn't a place that I have to say I would look back on fondly and say, wow, you know, the good old days of us hanging out and and just talking, you know, there were times that 
we were in the lawyer's lounge together. I certainly remember those when we would have trials and we're waiting for juries. And, you know, I have very fond memories of us and our team just hanging out in the lawyer's lounge. But in terms of the, the, this being a place of connection, I, I completely get it because I certainly would not have been a person who thought the lawyer's lounge was a place for me to connect with other lawyers. And it, How's that for a surprising answer? Well, it, it is surprising, but I, you know, as I was thinking through what the, what I wanted to cover with you, I think it kind of leads to my next, my next question, or at least I think it does, because, you know, you talked about um, being in the lounge with me uh, or, or your team. And I think, you know, one of the things that there's, well, look, there's a lot of things that set you apart in this profession. Um, and, uh, mostly having to do with your, your skill and your acumen um, and your work ethic. Uh, but I'm interested in your uh, mentorship. I'm interested on any reflections that you have for our audience about mentorship and your ability to maintain long relationships with other lawyers, long professional relationships with other lawyers. And you know, I think that's true for people who, who don't know your biography inside and out, though I think most of my listeners do. Um, you and I have been practicing together for 15 years. Um, Matt Gorley and Christine Mainville uh, have been practicing with you for over 10. Um, your relationship with our named partner, Scott Hutchison, um, spans decades. Um, you have decade-long deep friendships with crown attorneys, um, crowns who became judges, uh, and, and on and on. And, you know, so much of our profession is comprised of lone wolf types, you know, who are amazing advocates, but they run a solo show, man. And that's not been the case in your career. And I, I wonder how deliberate that was and what, uh, why you think it developed in that way? It was very deliberate. I, I never wanted to uh, start my practice on my own. It was not something I aspired to. I did not think that it was going to work for me because I had so much to learn. I wanted to understand how to do this job and do it um, the best that I could. And I wanted to learn from people that uh, I thought were outstanding at it. So I never imagined uh, the, uh, the option of practicing on my own. Um, the mentorship that I had, I think is very different than the mentorship that others have had and, and perhaps the relationships that I have built. Uh, but what I would say is I, I did have uh, close relationships with Eddie and with Mark. And after I left that, that continued for me and, you know, the, the calls were frequent and um, it was a, a genuine relationship of, of a mutual uh, friendship and, and respect. Uh, you know, when I um, started out on my own, um, I think what I wanted to do was to reflect what I think is um, part of my own life. And I'm a person who likes long-term relationships that are uh, sort of deeper friendships. And so 
I wanted to work with people, and there's no secret about this, I, I write about it in, in the book, uh, that uh, particularly the people that started initially with me, um, you and, and Matt and Christine were people that I wanted to work with, that I respected, and it was, you know, it was fast and furious, and it was obviously an intense bond between us because the place was growing and we were figuring it out and, you know, we were constantly within, you know, talking distance of each other. Literally, we didn't get out of our offices because we could talk to each other through the walls. Um, and so when you go through that and you go through um, the fire of many of the cases that we did together, you develop, uh, you either flame out uh, as a team or you develop a, a deep bond. And so that was the sort of um, relationship that I wanted to surround myself with. It's where I feel most comfortable. I, I just, it makes me feel um, better. And my relationships with uh, people outside of the firm are very similar. You're absolutely right. Many of the people I've litigated against have become really close friends of mine. Uh, and it's not a million people, but they are very long-term, long-term relationships. You know, in terms of how that feeds into the mentoring, I, I think there is an obligation to um, promote and elevate uh, the people that are, are coming next and, and to do everything you can to, to mentor through, you know, difficult issues and cases and, and to develop skills and, and to support. Um, I think that is an obligation. And I think it's really tough to get that when you're on your own. But it, it can't it can't have always been easy, you know. There there we were, I'm sure, very um, uh, frustrating and uh, annoying, and we got things wrong all the time, and um, we weren't as fast as we should have been. Um, and you know, I I wonder if you have any advice for intermediate lawyers like myself who find themselves suddenly flipped in the position of, of a mentor and how, how to manage that relationship and, and, and foster a relationship that's going to last a long time for those of us that think that's valuable. Well, I hope, I hope most of your listeners uh, do think it's valuable and that it's part of the giving back in the profession. I know you spend a lot of your time mentoring, not inter only internally, but externally. Um, and I think that's sort of a general view in, in our office that that's part of your contribution uh, to the profession. You know, what I would say is, you, look, you remember uh, your preliminary, your early times. I remember mine. I, re I remember many mistakes I made. Um, and uh, particularly in the first few years of st all the stuff that I just simply did not know. Um, and I got yelled at for it and I didn't get fired for it. And I got, you know, I corrected and I learned and I, I grew from that. So, you know, I think as a, as a mentor, the, the thing you have to remember is that you were there as well uh, and that you made those yeah. mistakes. You just, you come to it with such little knowledge in this profession. I, I can't stress how little, you know, when you're, you're handed a client when you're handed your first case, you just, you know, nothing, literally nothing, because it has nothing to do with what you learned in law school, right? Where not only was it academic, you know, by the time, the, particularly in criminal law, it moves so quickly that by the time you're actually working on the next case, 
the law, it's not unusual that the law is completely changed. Um, so it, it is a, it's, it's hard to get your footing. And I think that's the thing as a, as a mentor, you got to remind yourself of, and you got to be a little bit honest with your, the people you're mentoring about your experiences. Again, I know you do that. And in terms of sharing what it felt like for you, because it's, it's tough in the first few years, it's very, very tough. It really is. And, you know, there are people who think that law school should be reformed to include the building of more practical skills, you know, how to manage a client. Um, what is the business of law? And I, I wonder if you have any opinions on that. I, I do. I, you know, you think of doctors who spend quite some time working on cadavers. I mean, they actually, and then they go into <laughs> hospitals and spend a great deal of time uh, as interns learning the process. We spend such little time uh, training young lawyers uh, about what to expect when they come out. You're right. There's the business development piece. There's what to anticipate in the profession, which is a, a mystery that's locked away in a black box that nobody likes to tell you about. So you never know yeah. uh, unless you're a legacy person. Um, and then there's the actual practice of it, uh, the implementation of what you're doing, and you are really prepared for so little of that. I think I always say that law school really trains you to learn how to think in an analytical way. That is really what you come out of it with, it is a, a perhaps uh, an education not to jump to assumptions, not to, to work through things, to be somewhat more methodical. But th the substance changes and the actual practical um, part of the profession is just not something that law schools focus on. And that is very unfortunate because it makes the first few years for most lawyers really, really rough. And, you know, so you have someone who's paid a shit ton of money to go to law school and they get an education that doesn't necessarily prepare them for the first years of practice. They get into practice and it's really a, a rough ride. It's a steep learning curve. And what we are experiencing right now is what people say is a, an acute crisis in the defense bar, particularly for women leaving the profession. And um, my sense is people have been saying that um, to you for every year of your practice. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly right. It's not new. It's not new. It's, you know, the, the profession hasn't become more welcoming. Uh, and I'm going to focus on women right now. Uh, it yeah. has not become more welcoming to women other than really largely lip service. So we have definitely equalized the number of women that are in law school from a certain demographic, racialized women not represented in the same way as um, as uh, certain women from certain backgrounds. But we've equalized that component. Uh, the truth is that when you get to the upper levels uh, of partnership, it is still rarefied. There's still a lot of exclusion. I think what they don't tell, particularly for, for these Bay Street firms, uh, they don't tell young lawyers and young women in particular that, you know, by the time you get to year six or seven and you're looking at partnership, uh, they're looking to see what value you're bringing. And often that relates to what, what clients you have to bring. And so client development, which is really a, a lot of it is exclu excludes women from that, from that process. 
um, becomes something you only learn about very late in the day. So is it any wonder that you see at years six, seven, and eight, that women say, I'm out of here, I'm done. This is not fulfilling. This is not getting me where I want to be. People don't leave jobs be, that they find fulfilling. And it really bothers me when people say, oh, you know, the reason women are leaving is because of work-life balance. You know, first of all, men don't leave the profession in droves. They never have, number one, because they're far less concerned about work-life balance. They get to do largely whatever satisfies them, you know, in, in terms of um, their sense of self. Uh, but the second thing is they're very validated externally. So for women who are not seen, for women who feel overlooked, for women who are, you know, at some point get so frustrated trying to get a footing, sure, they're going to leave because it's not fulfilling for them because they're not seeing the fruits of, of their extraordinary effort being repaid or acknowledged in any way. So it's not, this isn't about let's set down mat leave or let's give women a chance to go home and make sure they're home to cook dinner for everybody, <laughs> which is, you know, so outrageous. Um, it, it's about allowing them a runway to, to feel fulfilled in what they do and to be acknowledged and to develop themselves. And they can make the decisions. I mean, we're pretty competent in deciding what we want to do. I, I don't think we need to be told by the law society um, or by firms uh, what we need to do and what will personally fulfill us. So it's a long-winded answer, but it's true, Danielle. It's, it's exactly what you say. This is not news. It's It's yeah. been 30 years where women are leaving. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I you know, I just, I do sometimes, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to blame the victims. I really, I don't, but I do sometimes just want to um, grab women, young women by the shoulders and say, just hold on, <laughs> you know, just. For sure, you want them to hold on, but it's so hard. You know, it, 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 it's like people who say, well, I did it. You know, I survived the odds, so everyone should be able to do it. Well, that's not the standard because most people, you know, that have succeeded haven't had to overcome the odds. So I don't know why that's the standard. So for many women, it is difficult uh, to, to resist and to overcome and to disregard the, you know, the, the constant noise in, in your ear and the, the constant butting up against um, things that are, are designed to frustrate what, what your goals are. And I can tell you candidly, uh, and maybe because it's Friday and I've got a glass of wine in my hands, but <laughs> I can tell you that, you know, I have deeply felt those those frustrations and I would say more in, later in my career than, than earlier on. And it is very, very difficult and frustrating to sort of constantly shake it off. So I agree with you. I would love for every woman in this profession to know her value and stop with the imposter syndrome, which is such a terrible thing to even be discussing uh, and to be, you know, feel good and confident about their rightful place in this profession. But do I understand why some people, many people feel discouraged? For sure. Uh, I do understand that. I understand it because it's hard to ignore if everyone's saying it to you constantly. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm constantly having to remind myself that my experience uh, in this profession is is so dramatically different than so many of my contemporaries because of where, 
you know, because of the matriarchy that you set up for us, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and I think, um, you say in your book that Eddie, you know, he never treated you as someone who would be compromised by their, their desire for a family life. And, um, and I, I take it Mark didn't treat you like that either. No, it was such a non-issue, right? Uh, look, certainly I was nervous about saying, <laughs> I'm going to have a child, I'm going to have to <laughs> check out for a while. But that was never the predominant part of my identity. It really wasn't. It was not something that was relevant to my work at, at all. You know, and there's good and bad with that. But sure. the truth is that as a female um, in that office, that my identity was as a lawyer. That is how I was treated. And it was based on my competence and nothing else. It was not a gendered work environment. And so I, that's what I came out of. That's what, how I began to perceive myself. Um, and obviously, you know, our, our office, well, you can, you can look at the numbers, you, you know, you know what it's like here. And I really believe that Injecting yourself into a female's personal life is, and that is, I think, the, the line that I find really offensive. You know, the, the, the fixation on the decision to have children as somehow being a catastrophe or something that anybody other than you and your partner should have an opinion about, I find really frustrating. And, you know, we are, unfortunately, Uh, women, our bodies, our personal decisions are very much uh, viewed as the thing that is completely appropriate to have a public debate about. And I don't think it's appropriate, actually. I don't think it's appropriate for, um, for people to be weighing in to what your personal life decisions are. And so, you know, at the, at my firm with Eddie and Mark, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't it was irrelevant. What they cared about was, was I doing my work and when was my work getting done? And that was it. It had nothing to do with my maternal instincts or, you know, how much, uh, you know, whether I was having a child or not, it just, it had nothing to do with my job. Yeah. It's not their business. You know, and I think like, uh, when you step back and you look at your career, you know, and I'm started with a question about, about the lounge I, I do think that that so much of your drive in terms of the business side of law, um, and tell me if I'm wrong, um, has been to try to build out a space, you know, enough space to create your own lounge, <laughs> right? I, I and that's an interesting way of putting it. I, I think that is sort of true because. Uh, you know, I, I like physical space, quite frankly, and um, I like the emotional space as well. And I like the professional space. Um, and it's, it, 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 it's an active decision to try to carve that out, uh, to do things in your own skin on your own terms, and to sort of stake your place. Um, but you're right, it is very much, it is very much about carving out space. Uh, And certainly, going back to your first question, the lawyer's lounge wasn't space for me. I mean, it wasn't where I was welcomed. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I remember, 
um, hearing Marlis talk about, you know, being literally sexually assaulted as a lawyer at Old City Hall, just checking the docket. And, um, you know, Marlis just retired a, a, a few years ago. Um, and so, you know, I think that sometimes our ideas of the profession are overly romanticized and I think it's important. And I, I try to do this because as you know, I tend towards the Uber positive. Is <laughs> <laughs> you know, to check my privilege and to really remember our history and remember how, how uh, much of a struggle it's been for so many of, of our colleagues. And, and you know, I, I, I do think um, that that's an important part of the work. On the other hand, you know, I, I, as you know, I read your book um, the way it should be read, which is uh, in your voice by audio, audio book, which I highly recommend to all our listeners. Um, but, you know, you describe in your book that moment and it's for, it, you know, this chapter is really for um, not specialists uh, like our listeners, but for the general Canadian audience. And you describe the moment um, when your client is arraigned and you stand beside your client as the charges are being read out um, when her majesty is making her allegation and you stand shoulder to shoulder with your client. Well, for you, it's rarely shoulder to shoulder. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the feeling of, of that, that moment. And, and, um, and I think for, for me, uh, and I'm sure for many of our listeners, that is a very romantic moment. And it's the moment where you feel kind of the, simultaneously the most amount of uh, pressure um, and anxiety and um, righteousness. No? It is a, it's a powerful moment. It is a very, that moment and the moment that the verdict is, is delivered, uh, where again, you're standing up beside your client is uh, a very powerful physical manifestation of your role. And, you know, I can't think of a, a lawyer, doesn't matter how long they've been at it, that that moment isn't deeply significant and just weighs a great deal on you. Um, because of everything that it involves and it entails and uh, it means, uh, you, you just, you cannot miss it. Uh, I mean, have, I know you felt it I, I, every single time. Does it ever change for you? No, no, yeah. no. It, and I know it means, it means a lot to the clients, you know, I, and I've had clients say that to me. I didn't know that you'd stand beside me. Yeah. You know? Well, that's the yeah, job. It is, it is the job. And it is an extraordinary moment because at that moment, for me anyway, as a client's being arraigned or the verdict uh, is, is being read, the extraordinary, extraordinary weight of the state's authority and power over you, it's just, you cannot miss it in what other context where you interface with the government or the state, do they have the ability to deprive you of your liberty and sometimes your life in the United States? Really no other context where you, you look to the government and what they are saying is we're gonna take your liberty away or we're gonna put you to death. And of course, 
people listening know that we had the death penalty in in Canada. So it it is really um, a a profound moment, I think, for any lawyer uh, to to stand beside their client at that moment and know that it is that really what you're standing is between your client and the state. Yeah. You're outgunned every single time, outgunned every single time. Yeah. And, you know, it's a certain type of person that chooses this job, don't you think? You know, my experience is that criminal lawyers in particular are a bit of a breed apart. Yes, I I do. (laughs) I think it is a particular type of person that puts themselves in the line of fire uh, and puts themselves in, in what really is a tough job. It really is. It's a it's a very it's a very tough job in many ways. So yeah, I think it draws uh, a very particular type of person who wants to do this as a choice. Yeah, and you know I you know this that I spend a lot of time thinking about um, the day when I w- I will stop doing this work <laughs> because yeah. I you know I love it. It's my life's passion. I. Um, feel so grateful that um, I found the law, the law found me, Um, but it's really hard and it's a lot of work. It takes up a lot of my energy and uh, it's pretty single-minded at this stage of my career. And um, I I think uh, what is, I think, uh, remarkable and and bears some exploration is... um, is what would cause you, Marie Hennen, um, with the weight of, of, of the role and uh, and the, the profession and running an office and, and building out um, what is now uh, a significant law firm, cause you to say, you know what, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that's that's such a, a good question. You know, I've been pitched to write a book for a while and I kept saying, no, I've got nothing. You always ever. said no. Listeners, I listeners, no. I was yeah. a witness to all of these <laughs> entreaties. Yeah. She always said yeah. no, always. And I think what was bothering me was this really two-dimensional uh, representation of a criminal lawyer, a female criminal lawyer. You know, you, you, you see me going in and out of court and you're, you're sort of put together and, and you're caricatured. And I, I want to make it clear, not on a personal level, I don't, I don't care. But I was wondering what was the impression that was being left with young lawyers? What did young women think? What did the public think of, of what we were doing and what it was that I was doing? Um, and it, you know, it, it was not written to defend myself. It was written, and I think if you if you read it, you would know that it was really written to be as honest as I, I felt I, I, I could be to give a bit of a broader explanation of what they were seeing. Uh, and I thought that was important to to explain my role and to explain who I was. I think those two things needed some meat around them, some, some yeah. further information. And, you know, people can make whatever decisions they want. It's not, it's not for me to decide, but 
you know, I, 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 I thought it was important to show that the, the, the person that walked into court, you know, there's a lot written about this being sort of put on the brand. I've had people call me and say, who's your brand manager? And it's so silly. I wanted to say, well, no, no, this is, this is who I am. I mean, I'd be clicking around in four inch heels and glitter makeup if I was working at Shoppers Drug Mart. This is the thing. This is my zone. And I wanted to sort of explain why uh, that was and that to give people an understanding that you can march to the beat of your own drum a little bit. This is not sort of the, the, the caricature that's defined is not what you have to be to be an effective lawyer, an effective participant in the justice system. So yeah. that honestly was the the driver for me was to just share a little bit more of a, a rounded picture and then, you know, let people decide what they want to decide. And I think like, you know, one of the things that always strikes me is when we're together, which is always, um, is, uh, all the young women who uh, come up to you, um, you know, high school students, university students, law students, lawyers, young women, particularly young racialized women, come up to you and 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 thank you for the example and the modeling and um, and for showing them that there's a there's a place for them too in in the profession. And I know that that feedback is very meaningful to you. Oh, it just, it means the world to me it, because, you know, just going back to what we were saying, this is a tough job and it be, can be pretty lousy. Uh, and I'm certainly far from immune to much of that. But the, the feedback uh, from these young women that say, you know, you, you made my day a little bit better or, or you made me feel like I can do this. Uh, I can, it's my medicine. It's, it's really very much the reason that I can get over myself and get over a lot of stuff because I think, all right, no, there is value to you being public and um, being resilient. So, you know, I've said this before that, you know, I know uh, you're watching. I know that. And it gives me a great deal of resilience and a great deal of strength um, and I understand that, you know, you, if you, if you falter or stumble that, 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 that just, I won't let that happen. I, I, I won't. Cause I think these young women need to know that you can make it in this profession on your own terms and that all of that noise needs to be just tossed away, but I would not be able to do it if I was on my own. Uh, and I don't feel that I'm on my own because of that sort of, of that feedback from young women. So it, it just, it really does mean the world to me. I can't, well, you know, it, it really does. Yeah, no, I know. And I, I you know, I think um, part of not to get too personal about our relationship, but, but so much of me wants for you to retreat a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of me wants to as well. Yeah. But then you've sort of seeded ground, right? You've seeded ground and that's not happening. No, I get that. But, you know, I do know that you're deserving of a break. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is it. It's a good chat on a Friday with a glass of wine. That's pretty cool. Right. And, you know, I think for, for some of our listeners who are not criminal lawyers, 
Um, and there are, there are many actually, interestingly enough, um, they may have noticed that you've made some appearances recently, uh, uh, well, for some time now, um, in, in civil cases. And I think that, you know, there may be criminal lawyers out there who have a curiosity and interest in other areas of the law and, um, you know, others who are steadfast that they don't even want to dip their toe in anything else. What, what do you have to say about that? Well, I, I think we have to go back a bit, a couple of generations, because, you know, historically, we really did have true barristers, uh, certainly in this province. Uh, you know, the, the greats, uh, you know, the, the Maloney's, the G. Arthur Martin's, uh, the, the, all of these uh, very uh, renowned lawyers were known as barristers, and they would do a civil trial one day and a criminal trial in the, the other day. Yeah. Um, but what happened is it morphed into more of a specialty and, and people sort of stake their ground in certain areas. And the idea, the, which still exists in England, obviously, if the true barrister sort of fell by the wayside. So look, it's not for everybody. I am a law nerd through and through. I love learning different areas of law. I love thinking about it. I love pushing the envelope in those areas. Um, so it's fascinating to me to be able to have the opportunity to do it. But the other part of it is a, a bit of that, actually, which is a bit of punching down those doors that, you know, this idea that if you are a barrister, you are really a, a true barrister. And in the States, that is the case. That is the case. You know, generally, you are a trial lawyer, you will have done civil and criminal jury trials. Uh, and so we have a bit of a, a, a real resistance to that. And, and that's only developed over the last generation or two. And I don't like it because I don't like constraints. Well, you're not fond of borders or boundaries. That's for sure. No, no. <laughs> I don't but like I guess, yes, you know, and, and, and maybe it started um, back uh, when you were developing both an appellate and a trial practice. You know, and I think a lot of litigators um, at my vintage and, and junior to me really struggle with that decision. You know, I better pick a lane. What advice do you have for our listeners on that? Well, the advice that Eddie gave me, which is there's no lane, right? There's only advocacy. So I, I didn't invent this. Eddie was an appellate lawyer and a trial lawyer. And I admired that. And I thought it made him a much better lawyer. And that is what he taught me. He said, you got to do it all. So it was my nature. It was my instinct to, to do both. In fact, I think most people don't know I did more appellate work than trial work initially. Uh, although I think I always viewed myself and certainly Eddie viewed me more as a, a trial lawyer. Uh, so I would say you get a great deal of value from doing both. They give you very different skills. And if you want to be the best lawyer that you can be, uh, doing both of those things is, is critical. You know, in our office, certainly that's the case. So you've done appellate work and trial work. And I think it, it really improves um, your lawyering. Uh, so that's why I do it and always have done it. You know, in terms of the civil work, you know, there's a bit of a, a club there and yeah, I don't like clubs. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I have to say, and it's not for me to speak on your behalf, <laughs> but, um, 
you know, and just, just circling back to some of the other topics that we were chatting about, I think one of the things that's been really interesting for me to observe as you have become more senior and celebrated as time goes on, um, is actually how, um, how sexism has impacted your practice Mm -hmm. through, through the years, you know, like it's, it kind of starts one way and it, it, you know, it, it kind of changes its insidious face. And I don't know, you know, we don't talk about it often. Um, you know, you're so right about it. I, I, I said recently that, you know, if you want to bust through a glass ceiling, uh, or butt up against it, you, you get scratches and cuts. It is, it would be untrue to not say that there is certainly a ceiling in our profession. And if you want to bust through it, the doors won't be open to you in a welcome way. That's not how it goes. Because, you know, if you move through it, it means someone else isn't getting through the door. And um, that that displacement of people who think it's their rightful place is something that uh, is not easily tolerated. And so you certainly see it in our bar. You see it in other areas. Uh, I think it is very striking in the civil bar um, in terms of women and uh, racialized members. It is uh, not hospitable at all. Um, And so, you know, it would be wrong to say that those things don't exist. They do. And they just, they have, as you said, quite rightly, it has a, a different insidious presentation depending on where you are sort of along the, along the, along the path of your, of your career. But certainly, I mean, it's, it's there. Uh, it is there. I, I just, I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to th- think about it. I'm just going to sort of push it out of the way. Yeah, no. And I think actually like a lot of parts of the justice system, um, you know, there's not a lot of time for analysis. You know, there's not a lot of, <laughs> there's not a lot of time to gather the data and, and sure. analyze it, you know, we're too busy doing the cases and, and moving on, but, um, you know, someone could look at it because, you know, what it looks like to me is, you know, you move from uh, a time where you're, you know, there's some, some sexual harassment, you know, the presentation of sexism in your career is sexual harassment to a period where the way sexism expresses itself professionally is um, in a in almost a, a persistent, constant drumming of being undermined. Sure, and excluded. And excluded. Um, and excluded. Uh, because you don't golf, because you know you don't necessarily belong to the same clubs. Um, because your background isn't the same. Uh, again, I, you know, I, I, if you spend all your time thinking about the reasons why you're not where you need to be, then you won't get there. And I, I'm not saying it doesn't bother you or it doesn't bother me at some times. I'm not stupid. I'm aware of it. Um, but it, it either becomes an impetus for you or a, a, a bit of an albatross. And for me, you know, the surest way to make sure I do something is to underestimate me uh, or to think I can't do it or to tell me you don't belong here. Well, then I'm going for sure. I'm going to go here. So I mean, that's, but the problem, here's the problem with that. That's my 
personality type, right? That's, that's the way I'm made, but I do not think you have to have that personality to be able to break those barriers or, or succeed. Right. And what's ugly about it is it's demanding such a, a resilience to push through that you're, you're dissuading so many women, so many people that should be here. They're as good as anybody else, but they sort of say, well, forget it. It's not, it's not worth this because it's such a, an enormous personal price. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's fair to exact that demand uh, from people to sort of push through. Yeah. And I guess like one of the reasons why I want, I wanted you to, to talk about it a little bit is, um, you know, I, I, I just want all of our, our listeners to understand that, um, you know, cause some of, sometimes you'll say to yourself, well, if I was tougher or, if I was better, or if, if I had done the following thing, you know, maybe it wouldn't have happened in that way, or would, you know, I wouldn't have suffered in the way that I, that I did. And, um, you know, I, I think it's important for people to know that it, it impacts even you. (laughs) Absolutely. It it does. It it impacts me. I mean, and the impact on me though, is it makes me angry. It pisses me off. And so I push further and I push harder. Um, that's the reaction. But I I think just going back to what I'm saying, and I I want, you know, listeners to understand this, I don't think it's fair to expect that reaction from people. Uh, I think what we should be asking is why do you have this environment? Why is that the, the approach? And uh, why are, are people being dissuaded or turned away or giving up on this profession? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I will always remember being asked in a mentoring session at the National Criminal Law Conference years ago, um, you know, for my, you know, top 10 tips on, on how to respond to sexual harassers. Wow. <laughs> and um, yeah. I was, you know, so angry because I don't want to be giving those tips, you know, like... <laughs> But it's I, sad that you have to, right? It's yeah. sad that it's a question and, you know, I'm routinely contacted about those scenarios um, and women who are harassed and lawyers who are harassed. Um, and it's it's awful that you even have to have one, let alone 10 top ways um, <laughs> of dealing with this. You know, I, I always think... it. it like you just want to go to work, you want to do your job and you want to be assessed on the quality of what you're doing. And when you have all of this other stuff, it just makes it so difficult, so difficult to get through. Um, and it sucks that yeah. that's what you'd be asked to identify. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think that we're starting to see a, a movement um, of, of more women you know, leaving firms, opening up their own practices, building out their own space, taking control of the business side, really making efforts on the business development piece of it. Um, And I see that as really a tremendous amount of progression, but also as like a a reaction to just uh, wanting so desperately to get away from this stuff. I agree with that, but I, you know, I think it's equally important uh, that we stay. You, you got to stay where you're not wanted. You do. <laughs> you got to stay where you're not wanted, and I know it's hard. Yeah. Um, 
but then you know you become the visible representation and it means so much to the people that come after you that uh, those barriers are broken down and that that attitude adjusts and that is difficult heroic work um but it, it we have to stay like i don't think retreat's an option no hey marie mm-hmm. how did yes. uh, how did your family react to their stories being told like you know you tell and and I, it's the favorite my favorite part of the book um you know you tell your your parents story you know you tell their yeah. story of of um immigration and and displacement and um and i and i wondered if you had to have tough conversations with them. You know, I was listening to a podcast with Will Smith and he was talking about how he had like a family retreat to break to everyone. <laughs> what aspects of the, of his book was going to, you know, touch on what, what various, you know, traumatic episodes and, and family scars. And I wondered how that went. I, I didn't do that. Um, there were a couple of things that I knew would be sensitive and I did discuss those and say, you know, here's how I'm dealing with it. But once again, in a bit of a, um, you know, in a, I guess an anomalous environment, my parents were very confident in letting me tell their story. Hmm. And, you know, I was pretty nervous because the first book that I got, I gave to them and said, okay, here it is, you know, read it. It's published now. So you, it was just off the presses. And, um, I remember just being really, really nervous because I didn't hear for them from them for about a day or two. And I was wondering, are they mad at me? Are they? And they were incredible. Uh, and they said that they said, you're truthful and you told it in the way that it was. And you, you know, you told it in a beautiful way. They were not upset. Um, but, you know, I've been really, really fortunate in my life, in my practice with my partners, in every aspect of my life to have people who say, we trust you. Um, and they did, they trusted me with their story and they were, they were, they were happy with it. And I, you know, they knew I was going to be honest about certain components of it. I, I, yeah. I had given them a bit of a, a preview about that, but yeah, no, they were, they were completely, completely fine with it. And there were things they didn't know either. So it was interesting to see that. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely surprised to see that there was, you know, only a, a couple paragraphs devoted to, to my impact on your life. <laughs> that, yeah, there was a whole chapter and we just didn't have the space for it. Maybe the sequel. The sequel is my life with Danielle. Although Pete, my brother says it's supposed to be my life with Pete, but I'll do three of them then. He's a yeah. pretty good character, man. Yeah, I can I can do a book on you though, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, look, I know you've got a nail appointment. I do. It's very important. It's extremely, it's very, very extremely important. Yes, <laughs> yes. As you know, we've discussed the issue today of whether I'm going to shorten them or not. So it's been uppermost in my mind. It was very distressing how long that conversation went on for. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for listening to me, though. Um, you know, I do, before we leave, I do want to say, um, you know, people are always, always want to say to me, they always say to me, uh, you know, Marie Hennon's perfect. She's a goddess. 
uh, on and on. And, and I agree. Um, but they also want to know about your failures, right? Like it's this, it's this kind of like KSD instinct people really want to know. And so, but I, I don't think it's fair for me to tell, uh, people about your weaknesses without giving you an opportunity to reply. So I, I want to start and tell them and I, okay. I so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do two. Okay. <clears throat> your favorite candy is Maltesers. Which are extraordinary with a glass of whiskey. Disgusting. Delicious. No one, the texture, the quality of the chocolate. It's You're so not eating gross. No. See, you can just let them melt in your mouth and then you get to the Maltese part or you can crunch into them. There are ways. There's a there's an approach. So anyway, or the Maltese the Maltese part? The Maltese part. <laughs> the Maltese part. Yes. Uh, secondly, yes. Um and I know, you know, you devote um a, a part of your book to Martha Stewart and her her mm. her insidious impact on your life through the 90s. Um yes. Uh, but you, it, it should be said, you do, you do, you are a good thrower of dinner parties. Well, thank you very, as are you, as are you're, you. You're a wonderful hostess. Well, no, I mean, as, as are you, we spend a ridiculous amount of time discussing lots of silly things. Yes. So you, so I still can't get you to walk through a department store and understand how the season is impacting our lives. Well, so, I, yeah, day, I think, day. no, I've not been inspired by your love of fashion. I, <laughs> I love, no. do not love fashion, but listen, uh, our listeners should know that though you are an excellent hostess, it's to a point and that's when dinner has been completed. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about my impatience. Yes. Please, please be honest. You know, you've been honest in your book, but I think it's time to really come clean. Tell people yeah. what happens when dinner is completed at a dinner party. Shay Marie Hennen. Well, sometimes it gets shut down relatively quickly. My problem is I have a short attention span. And when I get bored, it's very evident. So that's the thing. It's a, it's a bad combo. When you've got a dinner party, I get bored quickly and I can't hide it. Um, so... And you don't like a mess. I don't like a mess. I do begin to clean up very quickly, often while you're still eating, which is yeah. probably a bad habit. Yeah, I've been known to go upstairs and put my pajamas on. Um, but I've, I do behave badly. I'm not going to lie. Well, um, it's a flaw. Are- it's, you know, and, and I don't want to make this sound like I'm nitpicking people. It's she cleans up while we're eating and... <laughs> she, she starts cleaning and you think, oh, she's just wiping something down. No, she takes out the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Why are the guests okay, now, still you're, there? You're, you're making me sound as uh, <laughs> crazy as I am. No, it's true. I'm not. It's true. You're telling the truth. I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to disagree. I am a little. Nitpicky about those things. Well, I think that's enough. That's right. enough. Those are enough public shamings that you've, you've announced. You. All right. Uh, do you have anything you want to tell our, the lounge listeners? Any, any final words before we, well, we say goodbye? I think the lawyers, this lawyer's lounge is really cool because it's open to everybody. Hmm. Uh, and I do think actually your original idea is a really great one that you bring in everybody. Um, 
And the virtual lawyers lounge, I think is far more welcoming and far more welcoming because you've been doing it. So, you know, I adore you. I'm oh, a fan. You shucks. Know that, so. Oh, shucks. Well, thanks. Thanks for stopping by the lounge, Marie. Thank you. It has been decades since a fresh perspective has been published on the law of criminal evidence. Iman Publishing is proud to soon be releasing its first treatise, Modern Criminal Evidence, authored by Matthew Gourlay, Brock Jones, Jill D. Makepeace, Glenn Crisp, and Justice Renee Pomerantz, with a foreword by Justice David Doherty. This comprehensive 800-page treatise analyzes evidentiary issues from Crown, defense, and judicial perspectives, featuring up-to-date content and real-world examples on a diverse range of topics, including judicial fact-finding, digital evidence, opinion, circumstantial and character evidence, hearsay, judicial notice, the intersection of proceedings, confessions, and privilege, in addition to practice tips that provide readers with years' worth of trial experience anticipate evidentiary issues, develop practical solutions, and employ compelling advocacy strategies. And I can tell you that I've begged Matt for advanced chapters of this book. They are excellent. I've reviewed them and put them into practice in the trial context already. Pre-order your copy today. Visit iman.ca slash LLP dash MCE and enter promo code Lawyers Lounge MCE at checkout for 10% off your copy of Modern Criminal Evidence. The Lawyers Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network, directed and published by Danan Hawes, and marketing by Jordan Bloom. My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyers Lounge. We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like the Lawyers' Lounge podcast, as well as our Iman exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students. 